jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. The Manhattan Millennial Book Review with host Anuja Jaswal on jasoncharles.net. This is Anuja Jaswal, your host of the Manhattan Millennial Book Review here on jasoncharles.net arts and culture channel. In this episode, I will be reviewing Severance by Ling Ma. Severance was first published in 2018. To put it briefly, it tells the story of a young millennial living in New York as a global pandemic sweeps through the world and changes life as she knows it. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I bought this on a rainy day in 2020, and I started it then, but truthfully, pre-vaccination New York felt bleak enough without adding a novel like this into the mix. I finally restarted and finished it sometime last year. Let me begin by laying out some context. Shen fever, the disease sweeping across the world in this novel, turns people into shells of themselves. Those affected endlessly repeat banal actions from their daily lives, like folding clothes or setting a table. The most unsettling part is that it seems to be triggered by nostalgia. The novel is split between two timelines, the months leading up to her departure from the city and the present, where she travels with a group of survivors trying to make sense of the world. I just wanted to go through some quotes describing the disease that really stayed with me. So, for example, the effects on New York City are quick and devastating. The streets are emptied, subways and public transport shuts down, and it gets to the point where our protagonist, Candace Chen, who had no family to flee to, is the lost, unfevered person living in New York. Candace describes a fevered woman setting a table. Quote, it is a fever of repetition, of routine. But surprisingly, the routines don't necessarily repeat in the identical manner. If you paid a little attention, you would see variations, like the order in which she set down the dishes, or how sometimes she'd go around the table clockwise, others counterclockwise. The variations were what got to me. There's something really disturbing about the disconnected way in which she describes this. Like you're watching someone who's entirely detached from their actions, but you notice that there's these little changes that kind of alert you to the sense of like, I hesitate to say like something human still there, but the fact that these repetitions are not perfect um, really captures the uncomfortable relationship that you have to the fevered people in this novel because you want to believe that they are still human and that there's still something alive in them, despite them succumbing to what seems like a disease that strips away like any sense of personality. Quote, there was not one clean thing, not one clean place. If there were no cells dying and procreating all over the place in this room, in other rooms, if there were just not cells at all, if I could just find just one clean thing here, one thing to please just anchor me. Truthfully, that quote hit me really hard because I think COVID really changed our relationship with the outside world. It really solidified those borders between like the walls of our apartment and the outside. And I think that Ling Ma's prose there and, you know, the way that she expresses Candace's fears of like getting this disease somehow from this like dirty, stale old apartment, it really captures like the anxiety and how the threat of a disease completely changes your relationship with the world around you. And like the microscopic details there where she's so obsessed with these cells and how they're all around her and they're reproducing the extent of the paranoia. I thought that was really powerful. One of the core themes in this novel is the idea of routine. The fevered people 
you know, get really stuck in their routines and they repeat these seemingly meaningless actions over and over. But in the background to all of it is this struggle that our protagonist Candace Chen is having with her job and her work and how desperately she needs to hold on to that semblance of normalcy when the world is shutting down around her and nothing seems to have meaning anymore. Um, So there's this refrain that's repeated throughout the novel and it's, I got up, I went to work in the morning. And it's repeated just enough to be noticeable and it becomes almost unconscious. Like your eyes gloss over these words after a while, which successfully captures how routines feel. Every time it comes up every couple of chapters or so, your brain stops registering it as a new part of the narrative. I thought that was a really clever way that Lingma embeds the like monotony of doing the same thing over and over after a while into the reading experience. I think one of the best parts of the novel is how Lingma uses the disease of the fever to comment on work and routines. And the fact that she locates like the triggering of the fever in memory that really stood out to me as a very specific um, and a very important choice that she makes. Because surely, like, memories are the things that make us human, right? Like, human connection, um, like, being able to have a connection to your past in, in so many ways that's, like, at the core of the human experience. And so to make that the threat that turns into a shell of your former self was really cool. But also the fact that she's really critiquing how these lives that we've chosen for ourselves where we wake up and go to work in the morning and come back and we kind of live life in these endless repetitions does that betray our connection to the past and our connection to memory because we're like ironing out all these variations with the lifestyles that we've chosen for ourselves anyway i think this quote really captures the connection i'm describing memories beget memories Shen fever being a disease of remembering, the fevered are trapped indefinitely in their memories. But what is the difference between the fevered and us? Because I remember too. I remember perfectly. My memories replay unprompted on repeat. And our days, like theirs, continue in an infinite loop. We drive, we sleep, we drive some more. So I think that quote just makes you consider what life is and what sets it apart from the fevered. If this disease is just like, a set of endless repetitions over and over with no noticeable changes. Another core theme in the novel is money and capitalism and this conflict between like doing work that is meaningful to you, but also doing work that is lucrative enough to allow you to live in spaces like New York City, which, as we know, are prohibitively expensive to most. So Candace works at a publishing company, but she works in Bible manufacturing. And we're not entirely sure that's her passion in life, but... She's worked there for a few years and she sticks with the job because it's stable, it provides her an income and it provides her some sense of like identity. And I think that actually in the end is what Ling Ma is really getting at is the thing that you pay attention to most with Candace is the extent to which her job is such a huge part of who she is. And not just in a very conventional way of discussing like workplaces and identities, but in the sense that it becomes this anchor that she holds on to when everything else falls away. Quote. The company had huge buying power, so we offered even cheaper manufacturer rates than individual publishers could achieve on their own, driving foreign labor costs down even further. Obviously, Jonathan kind of despised what I did. Maybe I did too. The verb despised is a very definitive word. It's not, there's no uncertainty. It's a very strong word, and it's a very interesting way to describe what you do for a living. But the fact that it's followed by the uncertainty of maybe, you want to consider What does that tell us about Candace? Like, how do we see Candace as a result? The fact that she's doing this job that she might or might not despise. 
I just think that Ling Ma's choice of language was really important there in her characterization of Candace. This is an excerpt from an argument that Candace had with her boyfriend, Jonathan, who is much more idealistic than she is and is constantly going on about how he wants to leave New York City and move somewhere. Well, firstly, where he'd have more disposable income, but also where he can like freely do the work that he wants to do without pinching away at life. Quote, what I didn't say was, I know you too well. You live your life idealistically. You think it's possible to opt out of the system. No regular income, no health insurance. You quit jobs on a dime. You think this is freedom. But I still see the bare, painstakingly cheap way you live, the scrimping and saving. And that is not freedom either. That quote hit me really hard because I think that we have a lot of conversations about, unfortunately, like the conflict between doing what you love and doing what is practical. But I think the very direct and almost acerbic way that Candace just cuts to it and she says, you think this is freedom, but it isn't because the system will, you know, it'll keep you trapped in a different way if you don't play by the rules of what is lucrative um, is essentially what she's saying there. But the important thing is that she doesn't say this. She doesn't express this to her boyfriend. These are innermost thoughts and we as the readers are privy to them, but they're never expressed. And I think that's what's so weird about this novel is like so much of it is unsaid. And, and you know, because we spend all of our time in the protagonist's head and she spends so much of the time alone and isolated, it ends up feeling like a very reflective thing. And I think the important part is how our relationship to Candace changes so much because I don't think that she's meant to be a likable protagonist. I just think that she captures a lot of these different perspectives without really committing to any of them. Um, so she despises what she does, but she also won't quit. And she understands the idealism, but she can't, she can't quit and she can't commit to that lifestyle. I think the way that Ling Ma wrote her protagonist allows her to kind of explore a variety of different ways of tackling this problem without having Candace commit to any of them. Candace, in the very beginning of her work at this uh, publishing company, actually tried to quit her job. And this line that her boss says to her, I thought was quite chilling. You're maybe under the impression that everyone gets to do what they want for a living. So this novel is really realistic about the myth of choice under capitalism. And yet it's the same cynicism that causes Candace to jump at the chance to keep coming into work, even as everything grinds to a halt. She doesn't even read the full contract. It was a delirious offer. I turned the number around in my head. I wrung it dry. That's a really specific metaphor, and I think it speaks to Candace's relationship with money and, you know, in a way, like all of our relationship with money, where when there's abundance of it, you can't help but be really excited about that prospect. The idea of wringing a washcloth dry and like squeezing every possible thing out of it, like that's a very hedonistic image, but I thought it was a very evocative one as well. So Candace keeps going into work even when everything shuts down and there's absolutely nothing to do. She eventually even moves into the office and it's months of her alone in this midtown building, working, finishing her work, just writing out her contract and occasionally taking long walks around the city even though there isn't really much going on. But when the contract ends, she's swallowed by this wave of panic that I think Ling Ma describes in this really striking way. The expansive valley of Midtown engulfed me. Broken windows of high-rises whistled with wind. For the first time, I felt scared. I hadn't thought of what I would do when the contract ended. I hadn't thought that far ahead. That moment follows a very, very large amount of money being transferred into her account. But the thing that she feels isn't joy, it's existential dread. Because the thing that was anchoring her 
to this place and the thing that was anchoring her to just like, I guess, like existing in a city when you're all by yourself and you feel like you're the only person uh, that is still sane. Once the contract ended, all of that, even though it was essentially false stability, all of it was just gone. It immediately follows her stopping at this cart near Central Park, wanting to buy a Danish. And then she looks up and she realizes like all the pastries are moldy and the person selling them to her is a fevered. And she runs away and then she checks her bank account. And, you know, she's just had this encounter where like there's nothing to buy. There's nothing to do. Like money feels really useless in this moment, right? Because all these businesses are gone and all the people that ran them are or, you know, they've either fled the city or they're fevered or they've just disappeared for some reason. And I just thought the timing of that moment was really excellent where the money enters her account and the contract is over and she has no idea what she's doing. But throughout all this, you know, there's no explicit mention of the fact that this money's useless in this situation. Um, and I thought that omission was really important because even in this moment, the thing that Candace is concerned with is what am I going to do? Now that the world has completely crumbled around her and made the very act of working essentially meaningless. And I suppose it's coming to terms with that as well. So that's a rather long-winded summary of what I thought were some of the best parts of severance. Some final thoughts I had, though, were... So Ling Ma said the central question of the novel is why does Candace keep going to work? I don't think it's as simple as greed or familiarity. Candace doesn't have any family, but she does have a boyfriend that she loves, and it's important that she chooses to stay behind in the myth of New York, even as it's collapsing all around her. Is it denial? I read it as investing so much time and energy into building up certain signifiers of identity and meaning, like the prestige and stability associated with a steady job in a place like New York City. It can be hard to leave all of that behind, even as we tell ourselves that none of that matters anymore. And yet, if the world turned upside down tomorrow, what would you want to leave behind? Would it be a long career in Bible production that relies on exploitative overseas labor and a bloated bank balance that you can't even spend? It sounds like I'm moralizing, but I think the point of the book is that you have no reason to question your accepted routines and priorities until they form an unshakable part of you. Genres are always in an exact science, and I think this book is no exception. I think it's been described as both like dystopia and science fiction. The thing with dystopia is that it's usually about the present moment, but set in some sort of like futuristic parallel society that's actually commenting on now, like 1984. So I guess I would say that it's more of a reflective novel than I think a lot of dystopian novels feel like warnings and they feel very like they're really highlighting the way that things could go if we don't take care of ourselves. Whereas to me, this novel feels like just an extended reflection on the way that things are now. There's no like warning bells necessarily, but I think it gives us a lot to think about. Now, for obvious reasons, this novel has been described as a COVID novel. It blew up during 2020. Everyone remained surprised when I described the plot to them because it was published in 2018, a good two years before we were living through all of the things that we've been facing for the past two years. However, I think that despite the supposed similarities, I don't think this novel's best read as a parallel to COVID-19. Because Ma wasn't thinking about the pandemic as a concrete event that brings society's flaws into sharp relief. Rather, she was using the metaphor of a sweeping disease rooted in repetition and memory to imagine what the core tenets of our system would look like in such a situation. And I think that's the best way to read this novel. 
On the next episode, I will be reviewing Colorless Sukuru Tazaki and His Years of Pilgrimage by Haruki Murakami. Until next time, this is Anuja Jeswal. Feel free to send me your comments, questions, and suggestions. Stay safe. You've been listening to the Manhattan Millennial Book Review with host Anuja Jeswal on jasoncharles.net. For more information about Anuja Jaswal, check out her Instagram at anujajaswal1997, spelled A-N-U-J-A-J-A-I-S-W-A-L-1997. JasonCharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep. Very, very deep. For this episode's On the Shelf, I'm actually going to bring you five books that I have already read and highly recommend. Here they are. The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zauner, The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollingshurst, A Single Man by Christopher Isherwood, and Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson. All of those books are very different from each other, but I enjoyed reading all of them.